Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week, we take a couple of data points, we use them to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So last week, we celebrated our two-year anniversary of this podcast with a batch of listener questions on China. We thought we'd keep the celebration going uh, this week with another batch of listener questions. These on inflation and central banking. That happened to be the theme of a lot of questions we got over the past few months, perhaps unsurprisingly, with inflation being one of the big issues in the economy in the United States and elsewhere in the world during this time. So, yeah, we thought we'd dig into them. Just like last week, Adam and I were just talking about this, a bunch of really good questions. So um, we got so many questions that I actually also grouped them into some sub-themes when it came to inflation and central banking. And the first sort of batch, um, basically were questions about fundamentals. And the first one there came from Patrick Williamson. How does inflation actually get measured when so many things have gone up by so much more than the official inflation rate? How does that happen? And how does it actually work? Yeah, I think this is a very common experience. Patrick cites a whole variety of different items ranging from the minimum wage to the cost of, uh, I think he's been skiing or something. He's been to Colorado and he was saying that the lift prices have escalated. I think we did a segment about ski economics that explains quite well why that might have happened. That That is a, that well, we'll come back to it. That, that's to do with the monopoly. Yeah, that's uh, under the rubric of greedflation, but, but we'll come back to that. Um, but I think this is a commonly felt experience of recent years that somehow the official numbers don't reflect our experience. I will admit to having the same disjunctive experience when Columbia sends me my inflation-adjusted paycheck once a year, and you kind of look and you really scratch your head and ask yourselves, like, how did they pick the months to generate such a low? Of course, they haven't. There's, but this is a is a quite is a very common experience. So yes, it is a matter of going back to fundamentals. I don't think there's any reason to think that there's any shady business going on here. It's just a rather complex process, and it's very easy to, as it were, feel sensitive to price increases and not recognise the price decreases which are going on all around us at the same time. If you think about quality adjusted prices of iPhones and things like that. In any case, the basic way in which the inflation rate is measured and has been measured now in advanced economies for, you know, they first started doing it in the late 19th century in the 1880s, 1890s, is by averaging. I mean, what you're basically doing is taking a survey of a wide variety of goods and services and their prices, and then you you average those and you form thereby an average, which and you track that over time. And as that goes up, that's inflation. Um, obviously, 
not everything counts to the same extent. So it's a weighted average. And that's why quite commonly refer to baskets, for instance, of consumer goods as the way in which we think about inflation. I mean, in practice, the CPI, the Consumer Price Index in the United States, is composed out of 80, the prices of 80,000 items. So literally a list of you know, apples of this price or, you know, organic butter and inorganic butter and salted and unsalted butter. And they will literally count the prices of those differently. They will count the cost of kids' sneakers, adult sneakers, jeans, shirts, collared shirts, T-shirts, you know, literally every single one of those items, basically any item that you see in a grocery store or a big, you know, supermarket, a Walmart department store will be in one way or another reflected in this survey. I mean, the US, they literally send out people um, every month to three big cities, New York, LA, and Chicago, and then every other month to the rest of the country. Um, There are tens of thousands of people that are involved in this survey exercise, and it's a job. You go around and you collect the price data, and then they are put together using a weighting system which derives from a thing called the Consumer Expenditure Survey, which asks households what percentage of their income they're spending on each one of the items, again, grouped down to really very fine details. So you can't do this all the time. You you make a periodic survey of a sample of households, and then you use that survey data to weight the 80,000 price numbers that you're getting. Anyway, a very long-winded answer, but it's a it's a fascinating cross-section of reality. And rather than, I think, thinking of this in terms of fudging or, or even mistakes, I think we have to think of this as a sort of grandiose effort at approximation on a very large scale with quite a lot of investment of money to do it right. Because if you're trying to comprehensively index all prices, there's an awful lot of them. Got it. So our next question, again, also addressing some fundamentals on inflation and central banking, comes from Dom Galanis. He takes another step, I guess, down this path in terms of thinking about inflation, namely um, about how to combat inflation. And he specifically asks how those theories of interest rates seem to be failing us. Uh, we've in the UK just gone up to 5% interest rates, which is the highest since 2008. Um, but it doesn't seem to be having any impact on the inflation uh, that we're having uh, in the UK. Uh, and it's there seems to be murmurings uh, across journalism and academia that perhaps the old series of interest rates just aren't applicable anymore in globalized finance. Yeah, it's really a fascinating question and one that has evolved in real time, even over the course of us making this podcast. I remember a couple of, I mean, maybe a year or year back, we did an episode where we discussed the fragility of commonplace assumptions amongst central bankers about the impact of interest rate increases. The astonishing thing is, and, and in the course of the struggles with the current inflation, this debate has moved from the academic to the intensely practical. And over the summer, I wrote a newsletter about it in chart book. Isabel Schnabel, one of the leading thinkers in the European Central Bank, gave an astonishingly frank paper to, I think, an audience in Stanford, it was, where she where she showed the bandwidth of model estimates of the impact of a 1% increase in ECB interest rates on the European economy and what impact they expected to get. And it was astonishingly wide. And the ECB didn't give any clear indication of you know which model they preferred. And the models range from essentially no impact to almost a one-to-one, you know, like 1% interest increase led to a 1% reduction in inflation and a very substantial 
decrease in economic activity. And and what this is, is essentially an emission of ignorance on the part of the central bankers, that the single tool which they most often use is one that they have only very approximate. Well, they don't have any confidence. I think it's fair to say they have no reason for being confident that it actually, in a direct way, produces an immediate impact on inflation. Broadly speaking, the idea is it can't hurt, I think. And to be seen to be doing nothing would be damaging to the belief that you are serious about addressing inflation. So that by itself would be a problem. So you do something. I've been beating about the bush, though. What is the the general conventional understanding of what an interest rate increase does is to slow the economy down. Why? Because what it does is to make borrowing more expensive and it encourages saving. And the idea is that if people save more, it reduces aggregate demand. And if it's more expensive to borrow, there'll be less investment and there'll be less credit finance purchases of various types, credit cards, consumer credit, mortgages, house buying. And so all of that will tend to reduce economic activity. That's the simple form. It's not really cannot be a complete theory because, of course, higher interest rate payments don't just sort of disappear into outer space, right? If I'm paying more interest, somebody else's income is going up. If my disposable income is going down, their disposable income is going up. If people save more, then in practice, that could provide more funding for investment, at least on a kind of savings and investment model, a very standard model in in basic macro. So there could be an offsetting effect of a wider availability of credit. Certainly in an open economy, if you raise interest rates, you will suck in foreign credit, which may in fact raise investment. But it's a very complex process through which it works itself out. And then the other story that really matters is a story about expectations. So the argument here is that what drives inflation is not so much, as it were, the balance of overall aggregate demand, which is where we started, the idea that you adjust savings and investment, but price setting, which of course in some level reflects the balance of forces in markets, but let's just focus directly on price setting. And what influences price setting? Well, the argument goes what influences price setting is the expectation of the average future price level reflected in the minds of every single person that has any kind of pricing power, whether it's for wages or for goods. And so the really the thing that really sustains inflation is the kind of collective impression, the collective expectation that there will be inflation in future. And the crucial role of interest rates, it's really a kind of mind game, is to signal to everyone, no, there is an authoritative instance in the economy, the central bank, that will stop that. That's what interest rate policy de facto most of the time is really about. It sounds like in the previous question, there was a kind of ambiguity over whether interest rates actually affected inflation. As you were saying, Isabel Schnabel uh, was admitting they weren't sure how interest rates will affect inflation. But then that suggests there's a kind of like self-referential aspect to this credibility, like uh, in the sense... So Schnabel's, I mean, I wrote a a widely cited uh, newsletter about this um, that Schnabel actually asked me to send her (laughs) because I, because I, you know, because it's such a, I mean, she's a very intellectually honest, serious person. It it was fascinating um, because the, her line of argument was, look, there's a good chance they do work to some degree. We just don't know how large it is. So given our ignorance, we ought to uh, err on the side of caution and we ought therefore to adopt heavy-handed, large-scale interest rate measures early on in the inflationary process. That was her argumentation. So I called it an argument for action out of ignorance. 
Okay. But of course, it's, you know, it's the opposite of fine tuning. It's, it really is like, I don't know whether hitting the television with a slipper will really make a difference, but it seems to have in the past, it can't hurt. So let me just give it a good whack. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of logic that it's play. I mean, none of the models show interest rates having no impact. Mm -hmm. None of them, there are some people who argue they could have a counterproductive impact, but none of the models the ECB uses shows interest rates increasing, having a positive impact on inflation. In other words, increasing inflation. Um, so, and the interest rate is what you've got at your disposal and you are expected to do something. So you act, right? So it's that. In other words, error on the side of action. And that's, I guess, the logic of, of power in general. <laughs> like when you have power, you should use it because otherwise do you really have it? You certainly risk, yeah, being, yeah, being, being, appearing as though you don't have it. Yeah. So yeah, we'll take a break here and uh, then be right back to continue talking about inflation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. 
each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. So this next batch of questions is less about theory and more about some aspects of inflation and practice that we're looking at uh, right now in the economy. And the first question comes from Jesse Hicks. I'd love if you do a deeper dive and an updated episode about greedflation. It seems to be a persistent issue that's creating inflation. And while it's discussed, it doesn't seem to be discussed enough. And what really isn't discussed enough are potential solutions that could be done in order to tamp down greedflation. Yeah, at some level, greedflation is on the one hand a, a great slogan, right? It's a it's really a clever slogan, and on the other hand, it's really unhelpful. What it refers to generally is the role of price setting and profit seeking in driving price increases. On the face of it, however, if you think about the logic of greed, profit seeking, and inflation, on the other hand, it just doesn't seem as though the two things could really match because the really salient thing about the inflation that we've experienced in the last two or three years is it sort of came out of nowhere and suddenly exploded to 10% and is now back in the US case bound to you know 3% or more. So it's like this transient shock experience. Whereas if there's one thing we know about greed, it kind of has a timeless quality. You know, it'd be very peculiar, I think, to argue that there was a sudden surge in greediness that explained this. And, and furthermore, if prices were really escalating in the way that a conventional inflation does, then greed would need, even if it was a driver, it would need not to increase once, but to continuously escalate. So you'd have to get greedier and greedier and greedier and greedier and greedier to explain an increase in prices that isn't just for one period and then relapses or even goes down again, but keeps on increasing, which is what the definition of inflation is. Cumulative increase in prices across the board over a sustained period of time. And so, so, you know, on all of these scores, the, the very idea that greed, profit-seeking per se, could drive inflation just doesn't seem a very coherent idea. But if you back away from that standoff between greed as understood as this timeless thing and the actual experience, the inflation we've had as this sudden arrival of price increases, if you actually look at what we've been through, which is actually much less an inflation than a price shock, in actually quite a discrete set of sudden price increases that happened, all of a sudden an argument that runs not in terms of greed, but in terms of price setting behavior, the opportunity to raise prices and raise profits seems very compelling indeed. So when formulated as greedflation, I think it's a misleading and unhelpful term. It points us, however, in the right direction of saying, given what we've been through, which appears to be essentially more like a price shock, more like the transient story, a series of passing sudden increases in prices that have now slowed down or stopped and in some cases even reversed, their price setting by price setters, in other words, businesses, really becomes the center of the entire story. And if you look in the statistics, what you see is not so much an increase in prices across the board, though some of that does begin to happen over time. Not so much a huge increase in wages, which is, after all, an absolutely crucial price. That happens, but to a lesser extent than the measured price index through the price, the price indices we've been talking about. But a huge surge in the prices of certain goods where profit margins increased as well 
very in a burst and they increased very sharply in the early phase of the inflation in the US and in the latter phase of the inflation ongoing to the present in parts of Europe right now. And so it's really difficult to argue and has now become very widely accepted that profit seeking, the exercise of pricing power by sectors across several major economies have made a very considerable contribution to the current inflation. The thing at stake here is not greed, though, but corporate tactics in raising prices. So prices, you can think of prices as something that's sort of a given. They're given by a thing called the market, which in some markets, like, say, the stock market, where you've got literally thousands of highly incentivized actors all bidding on relatively similar things, the shares in Apple or whatever, might make sense. But if you look around, the vast majority of prices that count in people's lives are set by discrete companies which have pricing power, which have to decide on any given day, should the price of petrol or milk or bread or cars or whatever be X or Y? And under normal circumstances where you have fierce competition between firms and there is not an overall driver of price change, firms are quite rightly cautious about suddenly deciding to raise their price because what they fear is that they will immediately lose market and be market share and be punished. So they're greedy. They're always greedy, but they regulate their greed because they realize that if they pursue it in too rampant a way, they they will suffer consequences. And I think the convincing argument for a price shock driven by profit seeking and price setting is that the chaos, if you like, the confusion of the price system, the supply chain conditions, and not just the experience confusion, but the realization that it might last for some time and the fear that other people might take advantage of it and then you would become a loser in a Darwinian process of adjustment is what both enabled firms to drive prices up because people were sincerely no longer sure that they really knew what, say, the price of an airline ticket should be when we come back from COVID and there's been no flying for a year and a half. That's the ones side that the possibility of raising prices, which they always want to do, but generally speaking, afraid to do. And on the other hand, the fear that other people in their supply chain will raise prices. And if they don't raise their prices, when they get the chance, the firm will become a loser in a cost squeeze situation has triggered a lot of companies into the otherwise too risky uh, tactic of suddenly deciding to say, you know what, we're going to have to make our consumers swallow this, we're going to raise prices. And that's, I think, a much more convincing story of what's happened. It's inherently temporary, it's inherently time-bound, it results from the dislocations of the system, which then, on the one hand, create pressures for action, the fear that you're going to get squeezed by other people, and on the other hand, opportunities for action, because consumers and the people who regularly buy from you are no longer really all that confident of what the price should be. Plus, of course, there's been huge adjustments in purchasing power because we had these very big stimulus packages during the COVID period where people have these you know, excess savings, so-called. And so there was the sense that this was the moment, this was the moment for firms to strike. And what's really fascinating about this kind of explanation is it's the exact opposite of greedflation because greedflation is a kind of timeless logic. People are always greedy. This is saying, no, in this particular moment, because of a particular set of contingent historical circumstances, that greed, which is always there, got actualized in the otherwise risky business of putting prices up. If you take the view that in the current moment we've been dealing with a price surge driven by an increase in profit margins, then that obviously raises a whole different set of questions about how we should address this so-called inflation as opposed to, say, raising interest rates. 
because raising interest rates isn't immediately going to affect profit margins. And so what we've seen across the world in different shadings are efforts to directly regulate prices, to stop prices going up. So we saw this in response to the energy price shock. The risk of doing that, of course, is you reduce the desire to supply the goods and services if you don't allow companies to make profits. So there's an edge there. And the the other policy has been various types of anti-monopolistic uh, attacks. So in the in the American case, for instance, there's been a move to allow the big purchasers of drugs, prescription drugs, to negotiate more freely with the very powerful pharma uh, companies in the US who make huge profits from selling drugs into the American medical system. So those kind of moves are the most spectacular. We saw the Biden administration, you know, hectoring Saudi Arabia and asking them to pump uh, more oil, hectoring the US fracking industry to increase uh, oil production so as to bring prices down, the accusation being that a foreign-dominated monopoly was gouging American consumers. So you see the full gamut of overall price caps, attacks on monopolistic practice, and geopolitical intervention. All of those would be responses to understanding inflation in terms of profit-seeking and price-setting behavior. The next question comes from Daniel Kotecki. I was wondering if you had any explanation why there is a strong east-west divide in inflation rates in the EU. Is it perhaps because Central and Eastern European economies are more exposed to the effects of the Russian war in Ukraine? Or is there perhaps a higher level of market concentration in key sectors like agriculture, allowing the firms to hike up prices more? Yeah, and Daniel, thank you also for putting me right about my mispronunciation of Czechia which uh, I know that's like some unaccountable bad habit. It's a really interesting question and, and underrated because the um, Eastern members of the EU have experienced rates of inflation, which at times have been twice those of the West, and it's been a big enough shot for the West. So whereas the US and Germany and so on have had inflation, which has topped out in the 6 to 10% range, um, in Eastern Europe, um, there have been several cases of inflation almost up at 20%. And inflation at 20% is a big shock to an economic and social system. It means that if you do not have the bargaining power to raise your wages, you are suffering really dramatic losses of real income, you know, on a weekly basis almost. So it's, it's very serious stuff. I think key issues here threefold maybe extreme exposure to energy shocks because the East European um, members of the EU were, were all previously, of course, deeply integrated into the Soviet energy system. They were even more reliant on gas, for instance, than Russian supplied previously, Soviet supplied gas, than the famous West European cases, Germany and Italy and so on. We just didn't talk about them as much, but their, their vulnerability is every bit as bad. The second thing is that because they're substantially poorer, in terms of per capita income, the basket, the weighting of their inflation basket is different because people on lower incomes tend to spend more of their income on food essentials. And food has been one of the sectors which has seen one of the largest price shocks. And it's also been one of the sectors where there's very good evidence for people surging their profit margins. So this has been one of the sectors where we have seen monopolistic power being exercised to force up prices and increase margins. So those two things combined mean the inflation rate is higher. Furthermore, and we should add this, many East European members of the EU are not part of the Eurozone. So their monetary policy, fiscal policy mixes are set by national governments. 
Notably, in the case of Poland, for instance, in the run-up to the elections there, the policy mix has been, if we should say politely, it's been accommodative. You know, they've, they've really expanded both government spending and allowed a, a much more rapid increase in aggregate demand. And, and that certainly has contributed as well. But I think those would be the three factors that stand out as a result of that. And in part also because incomes are lower and so people have less margin for manoeuvre. Wages have also increased more dramatically in the East European states than they did in the West, which is a blessing, right? I mean, the inflation hawks will tell you this is the worst nightmare because that makes the inflation process more durable and harder to control. But it also means that people are actually protected against its ravages, right? If your wages going up, then you can really don't really need to worry that much about inflation. If you're a debtor, if you've got credit card debt or mortgage, it can actually be very much to your benefit to have your wage adjust, prices adjust, and your debt go down in real value. And there was some offsetting degree of wage increase. That, of course, then becomes a secondary driver because as service sector wages go up, then the prices in restaurants will go up as well. So then you see an adjustment. The inflation in Eastern Europe, in short, has been a little bit more like a true general inflationary process than we've seen in the West. So our last question in this batch is from Ian Ryan. I want to ask a question in regards to the soft versus hard landing debate. I recently listened to a podcast where Nouriel Roubini, a professor of economics at the NYU Stern School of Business, mentioned something about a potential for a even worse stagflationary crisis in the coming years. Uh, His argument is that we face supply shocks in a context of much higher debt levels, implying we're heading for a combination of 1970s-style stagflation and a 2008-style debt crisis, which will cause a stagflationary debt crisis and even a protracted global recession. I was just wondering how much credence you give to this argument. I'm much more optimistic than that, to be honest. But let me like back out and, first of all, like explain you know, the stagflation diagnosis. So when you try and end an inflation, what you're aiming to do is bring inflation down at minimal cost. And the idea is that to bring inflation down, you probably have to reduce aggregate demand, reduce, slow the economy down. And the, the big mechanism for doing this is the housing market, our real estate values, and on the other hand, employment. And the two things are linked through construction. That's the kind of classic mechanism, but it has been much broader logic. This is the story of interest rate increases we were telling earlier on. And in the best case, you you signal hard, you're credible, you flick interest rates up, the economy responds, the economy slows down, you don't suffer a major increase in unemployment, but in the price setting behavior changes and the economy motors on. A hard landing would be a case in which this policy succeeds, but the cost in terms of unemployment is very substantial. So that will be a recession, so-called hard landing. Soft landing, inflation comes down, unemployment doesn't go up much. Hard landing, inflation comes down, unemployment does go up a lot. Stagflation is a situation in between where you kind of get the worst of all possible worlds. Unemployment goes up, hence the stagnation bit, but inflation doesn't come down. So then you end up with permanently higher inflation and higher unemployment as well. And that would, of course, be the nightmare scenario. Now, none of this, not even remotely any of it, has come to, come to pass or looks like it's likely to come to pass. I have to say, the scenario we're seeing in the US right now is a bona fide soft landing. I mean, we have unemployment at 3%. Output has continued to increase. Interest rates went up to 5%. And 
you know, broadly speaking, inflation is down to somewhere in the range of three to four and trending down slowly. And we'd like to come it to come down more rapidly. But to call, you know, and, and it might settle around three and unemployment might nudge up to four or five in a hard landing scenario, to be honest. And to call that stagflation, I think, would really be to stretch the meaning of the 1970s metaphor. It just doesn't look likely that that is the kind of world that we're entering into. I've, you can't rule it out in general, but I think that that kind of, you know, the mobilization of 1970s analogies to explain the current moment is very unhelpful. What What is the big difference? The big difference on the upside from the point of view of inflation management, it's very ambiguous from broader societal point of view, is that trade unions are much weaker now than they were then. So in the 70s, it was hard to drive wages and price inflation down because you have resistance within society to that policy because you've got powerful trade unions which are pushing to try and raise their wages. They're exercising market power. And that makes, if you like, the wrestling match between the central bank and price and wage setting much more difficult, which makes you more likely to end up in a stagflationary scenario, unless you can get the trade unions on board and you can navigate towards a deliberate soft landing. This is called concertierte Aktion in Germany. We don't have that anymore. That's one thing that's changed. Rubini talks a lot about debt and with good reason. And that's a really interesting phenomenon. He thinks that might lead to a stagflation. If it did, it would be a new model of stagflation. And it's a big, powerful effect, right? So in 1970, global debt to GDP was 100% of GDP. So there was as much debt out there as there was GDP in terms of annual production. Today, the ratio is something like 250 to 280%. So broadly speaking, two and a half to close to three times as much debt. Now, why does that matter? Because that means that a lot of balance sheets, very big balance sheets, and resulting from those, lots of incomes and disposable incomes are highly sensitive to interest rates. So were you to have to raise interest rates for even a relatively short period, you might impose such a high cost on these highly leveraged households and firms that they suffer permanent damage. And you end up, if you like, with... I think maybe the scenario is less stagflation, really, than just slow growth. So you do get your soft landing, but out the back of the soft landing, you get a period of slow growth as a result of really highly leveraged households and firms, which acquired that leverage in an era of low interest rates, adjusting to the fact they're now living in a world of 5% interest rates. And this impacts everyone. It impacts federal government. It impacts businesses. It impacts households who, for instance, right now can't sell their house because if they did sell their house, would need to remortgage at a new mortgage that would have an interest rate maybe twice as high as the one they're currently enjoying. And so though the house is you know, maybe a great asset, you lose your mobility because you can't afford to remortgage, even at the same level of mortgage, at the higher rates of interest. So those kind of effects are going to hit the economy to call them stagflationary and invoke the 1970s nightmare, I think, is more misleading than it is helpful. But that's certainly also a major historic change. On the one hand, the weakening of the trade unions, which makes technocratic management easier at the price of a higher degree of inequality. And on the other hand, this overhang of debt, which now shades and affects everyone's decision making at virtually every point in the economy and means that the whole system at least over the medium term, is much more susceptible to interest rate changes. Got it. 
So we're going to have to end our discussion of listener questions here for now. We have still plenty of other listener questions, and I'm sure we'll get to them at some point in the months ahead. But uh, yeah, after these last two weeks, we're going to move back to our normal programming next week, where we'll be covering, yeah, as we say, a couple data points, try to explain the world, etc. So uh, yeah, see you all back here next week. And thanks for all your questions. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Thank you. 
everyday ambassador peels back the curtains of high stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.